Hello, this is Quintessence of Dust, episode one. I'm your host, Jack Newman. So in my last episode, I talked about caveats. I kind of introduced a lot of my um, mental models uh, that I attribute to eh, certain actions, certain ways of thinking. Um, and how I think the, the mind works. Um, I think we draw a sharp divide between the subjective and objective, which is one of the primary uh, things that we've been looking for in philosophy, is how can we tell what is objective and what isn't? I don't think we ever can get out of this paradox uh, of knowing things in the world. Uh, it's always necessary to some degree to bootstrap your ideas based on previous assumptions. That even when we're talking about the basic uh, laws of physics, at some degree it takes... Uh, something to bootstrap those ideas. And we think of, you know, a fundamental part of physics, two-dimensional uh, projection of a projectile. Uh, and I, I just think of a, an example like the carnival game, you know, where you have um, usually three milk bottles that are stacked up and you have to use a softball to knock them over. And, uh, what, you know, when we're thinking and uh, how Newton interpreted it in this way was that when we project the softball towards our target, it obtains um, a force which is designated by taking its mass and timesing that by its acceleration. Um, now, even with this very basic idea, you have to bootstrap your ideas. You know, we're taking something that we can quant quantify, as in we can quantify an object's mass by weighing it um, and discounting for the effect of gravity. Um, we can quantify an object's uh, acceleration by measuring its velocity and how the velocity changes over time. These, in many aspects, are arbitrary measurements. I mean, we produce the ruler that's going to tell us how, f you know, how far the object is projected. We test the, I mean, we invented the idea of a second, a time interval. We came up with the idea of mass. Um, and yeah, it's, it's getting at physical properties, but we still have to bootstrap our understanding in this way. Um, and that has guided the, the way that int intellectual thought has developed, um, for good or for bad.
So as words are condensed into a written form, they are given a certain density of meaning. Uh, this is how we bootstrap meaning within language, is that we discern, given a certain word or a combination of words, uh, the pattern that it's invoking and the force of the pattern. So uh, what I'm really trying to think of here is how does words, when given to us, change our perception? And uh, if you listen to episode zero, I, I brought the idea that we do this by looking at the objective facts of the matter as we see them, which um, once the subject matter becomes intensely more diffuse and subjective, then it's impossible to have a perfect calculus of this, which makes it easier to, to do this in an objective manner. Uh, and also we reference this to, um, I would say, something like a truthful constant in that we attribute a constant across uh, the amount of people or, you know, the weight of those people and how they affect our ideas. That's something that we weigh, weigh against, and rightly so, our personal inclinations, because this is a, a situation where if, if we just take the personal without attributing the overall truth value that humans have attributed the, the facts in the hand already, then we make, there's many things that can cause us to make errors um, where we can't come up with a cogent response to what we're doing because uh, we're not taking, we're being hubristic in thinking that we can ass better ascern better ascertain the truth value of a certain thing better than an average collection of people. And I don't think it's just numbers to us. I mean, I think there is a calculus that is done that, oh, if an Albert Einstein says something, then it, it has more weight than Joe Schmo. Um, you know, it's, it's not as, as straightforward as it may seem. Oh, that's gross. Put that there. <laughs> Yikes. But so, how do we come from looking at a word or a written thing or um, a phrase that's spoken? How do we come from that to believing that that becomes true? Well, there's really two options here because uh, it's based on either side of the equation. I mean, Either you have a powerful personal experience that makes you disweigh the common assumption. Um, this is what may, a psychopath might consider, and you know what people who um, del have delusions uh, tend to be in this category of what's personally attributable can only be 
carries more weight than anything else. And this is the problem of um, when you hear someone like Eddie Bravo on the Joe Rogan program talk about if there's no proof of something, uh, it, it's almost like the conspiracy mindset taken to its extreme uh, conclusion, which is that we can only gain uh, information about the world objectively through our personal experiences and inferring the thing. And uh, to some extent, this holds true, especially when you're talking about you know basic things like dimensional physics. I mean, if, if you throw a ball and you make the same... Uh, make the same calculations that Newton proposed to uh, infer to two-dimensional motion, then you're going to come up with the same equations or, you know, some some translation of what becomes the same thing. You're going to take what's available to be measured and you're going to measure it. And this is the assumption of knowledge, is that at the baseline... The things that are the most objective are the things that, that you can do away with the human societal aspect completely because regardless of whether you're just doing it from personal perspective, it still comes out with the same response. And this is what we, what we see as classical science, is something that can be tested interpersonally without having to be um, subjected to our inferences about that knowledge um, power within society. <clears throat> now, we, you can also take this to its other extreme, which is the everything is subjective point of view, whereas you assume that, hey, you know, everything is an inference based on what the outside world is telling us, regardless of Especially when, regardless of whether we can make it uh, uh, apply to classical science mechanics or not. Um, because, the, you know, the amount of things that we can actually personally verify are actually very small. Um, and once you start, you know, having to design your own technologies that would be able to uh, give that data to you, then you're coming into what I like to call... Hold on. What I like to call the paradox of complexity. Now, the paradox of complexity is that very quickly in our world, the variables that we can calculate within ourselves to give us this personal insight into objectivity gets so immense that it seems like we're pulling it from the ether when in reality there it has to be directed by our conscious attention. It just has to be because there's just so many variables out there that can't be complicated, can't be uh, computed by our, our minds. Um, now that science has gotten extremely diffuse, extremely specialized and extremely intense, this makes it ever more the case that, our minds cannot overcome this paradox of complexity that limits our ability to comprehend certain things. Um, this to me is, is almost an irrefutable proof to empiricism in my, in my opinion. 
Um, and it may not look like that. I, I'm going to try to flesh that out a little bit because it's the, the free will can only be sustained if you assume that the world in which that we take, that we will, is um, this realm of possibility. And uh, the, only, the only time that, that the rule of this is slightly changed is in the sense of a gestalt. And uh, what that means is something that becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And the idea of a gestalt challenges this, but not, not strongly enough, in my opinion, to change my opinion about it. Um, because it is true that there are systems in which they work better than some of their parts, but I think it's because there is also a overly complicated solution to the problem that can't be immediately grasped. Um, and this is where I get into, well, the idea of writing a book. Because we read it linearly from left to right and assume that, that you know, the ability of the, of the author to step outside the narrative, to edit, to be able to rearrange things. Um, when we're reading it, we remove that from our conception. Uh, we, we suspend our disbelief in believing that someone could construct this from without. And so, and it's the same way, way with comedians, we, we go into the illusion that this is um, an extemporaneous uh, ejaculation, so to speak. Um, that the thing about the comedian that makes us so overwhelmed is the fact that they can step outside of time and that for one show in one city they could give their act and make it seem like it's the first time they've done it when in reality they've done it thousands and thousands of times if they're good at what to do. The same thing with an author. You go through it and you think, wow, that was a brilliant way to do it. And and then, for, you know, for those of us who don't think in terms of plot lines, we, we think it's overly complex. Of how, could, how could you have that all come together and fit like a piece of a puzzle perfectly to make the, the picture appear? Um, well, it's, it's a lot easier than you think if you can step outside of time and the, uh, the illusion of it being extemporaneous is what lends itself to giving that, that sense and in this in this way it's it's similar with when you consider the paradox of uh complexity in that we look at something and we think oh it, it couldn't be uh contrived this way um because we can't conceive of how it could be and therefore we we allow our minds to suspend our disbelief in reality and to engage in the illusion uh, that is an extemporaneous model of viewing the world, thinking that things are happening as they are now, and especially within our own minds, and not thinking that they aren't co-opted that way by 
a thousand things that we couldn't comprehend and a thousand more things that we might have some glimmer of comprehension and some thousand things that we might understand very well. But the fact that we don't know what we don't know um, makes it so that we don't know what is less and what is more. Um, this has become quite a problem in a modern time, and I don't want to go into that because this is not what this episode is about. But what I'm really trying to get at is how do we know when we hear something objective that it is objective? I mean, you can intuit what I'm going to say on the matter in that it is definitely um, a projection. Um, it's something that is thought of before we even had a chance to react. And uh, what we perceive as a motive is merely a confabulation for a preconceived impulse. Now, what, how can I say this with such certainty? Well, given the paradox of complexity, which is pretty starkly apparent in my fact, in my mind, and just appeal to determinism, which I gave a pretty strong case for last time. Um, but I'm going to give one, one aspect that I don't think I hit home as well as I think I should have, in that if our, if our minds can be held outside of a physical system, then we are thinking in terms of dualism, that our minds then have to be composed of something that isn't part of the physical universe we haven't discovered anything that isn't part of this physical universe except for the emanation of consciousness that we don't completely understand. This isn't a coincidence to me. I think this is purposeful. I think that we can't deal with this problem yet. And, you know, which would bring into question why I can say it. Um, but I'm not going to deal with that right now. Our minds don't exist in some null space. Our minds are conducive to the physical systems that we see around us. We know that ever more presently in psychology. And the thing that... The complexity of the Gestalt complex um, throws us off for a loop. But even beyond that, the complexity itself would be too overwhelming. Now, I, I am one of the people who's always wanted free will to be the truth, but I just knew that something within me told me it wasn't. Um, and it wasn't until a few years ago that I changed my mind and started to really crack down on what it meant to be deterministic. Um, and that this is really what, what I'm trying to get at. Um, what does it mean to be deterministic? Because I don't think that people have grasped the full implications of what this might mean. I think they're afraid to, to grasp that concept. Um, the only time I've heard people bring it up, they've said, uh, when you consider determinism to be more applicable than free will, nothing changes. 
and that should be indicative enough. And in my opinion, you know, maybe my anxiety has changed, but overall the world doesn't change. I don't, oh, you know, meta think myself out of doing stuff because I know that I live in a deterministic model. In fact, this makes me more realistic to my own needs and wants and being and treating myself with the respect that I need to because the less that you uh, integrate yourself into the, the mode and what, you know, to make explicit what you want. And the problem is, is if you can't make explicit what you want, then you're going to find any way not to because that's not what you want. And it, I think that's a very tough pill to swallow. I think I have and other people have swallowed it. Um, and outwardly, yeah, it doesn't change much, but I would hope that it would change things at some point. <laughs> so I brought up two questions. How do we determine what we hear is objective and truthful? And what are the implications of determinism? Now, are these two questions mutually exclusive? Does one necessarily lead into the other? It's hard to say. Um, I mean, the natural conclusion, if I take a reverse perspective on this, would be that determinism um, conduces our minds to see truth when we see it. But the thing is, you know, there's a feeling that's, that comes along with that, too. The, you know, the, the atypical eureka moment. There's a definite, like, clicking into place. And it's hard just to attribute this to, like, the, the, di the psychic dissonance that's created when you finally find a key concept that puts others into, into dark relief. Because that's what I, you know, that's what I think truth, when you hear a truth and you change your mind, that's what I think is what's happening, is that it's creating, it's, well, it's like what the, the simile I used earlier, it's like you take a piece of, pu a piece of a puzzle and you put it into its, its proper place, and by doing so, it gives a greater understanding of the whole picture. Um, but I don't think it's that easily explainable because truths don't just lock in like a puzzle piece, you know, in determinism, uh, it does, but in comprehending that process, it also applies to the paradox of complexity. So... The thing is, is that the, there's going to be the shadowy edges of those truths that are going to be revealing in them, in them themselves. And I think that's why it is important to understand that moment, to understand what compels us to, to draw this previously unconsidered fact from the ether and to weave it into our understandings. 
Because that's what we're doing once we hear that Eureka moment. That's what we're doing when we make a paradigm shift. You know? Because for some people, it's as easy as uh, all the evidence that was needed was finally arrived at. Um, and uh, that's, that's the idealized situation because that implies that your ego is an attached to that, which in my experience is never the case. Our egos are always firmly entrenched within those, the bounds of that, those true statements. Um, because the boundaries of what we believe uh, determine the boundaries of our actions, the boundaries of everything. And so the thing is, there's, there's a lot of mental energy that's in reserve when you think about that. And when, once the things click into place, that's what creates this explosion that's physiological. I mean, it's hard to deny. So there's something hardwired in us that looks for that moment. There's something that looks... The thing is, is that every impulse within us is, uh, is set up conspicuously and on purpose. Uh, the fact that you know, most people probably gain uh, more enjoyment out of a line of cocaine than coming to uh, know something that they hadn't before. Um, and also there's, there's many factors within our lives that, that push against that impulse and stultify um, our beliefs that cause us to not try to find things that may change because we are in a holding pattern. And I think that's fine as long as it doesn't become a positive feedback loop because that's when you start having real problems. Um, and that's, the thing is, is that it puts you at immediate risk for developing uh, those positive feedback loops which uh, create, that's what creates endless anxiety. That's what, you know, and uh, I guess I have to explain. It's uh, a positive feedback loop exactly like the feedback when you hear a guitar being put up against an app. It's when the, the thing that's amplifying the sound is also receiving the sound and amplifying it. And so once it gets to the point where the incoming sound is louder, is, is quieter than the outcoming sound, then the, the whole system gets louder, 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 louder until it becomes unbearable which is the the squeal you hear and uh that can happen to us in our mental lives um and the problem with not dealing with your problems the problem with stultifying your mental process is that you're lending yourself to the the possibility of having those positive feedback loops if you have a way out a way of releasing the pressure once it gets too much then you do, and then your your mind, you know, changes, um, and that goes directly into what you may or may not consider objective, because if if what you consider objective stultifies your worldview to the point that you can create a positive feedback loop based on something 
based on what you felt at the time and something that may happen to you that is an irrefutable fact that you can never deal with. Uh, you know, anyone, most people have dealt with something like this when you find out something you really don't want to find out that if you addressed would change your life, would change how you view the world, would change how you live. And instead of dealing with it, then we avoid it. And not only do we avoid it, we convince ourselves of a reason that we needed to avoid it. Um, because that's the only way out of producing that positive feedback loop. Because otherwise, you're continually going against, how do I deal with this? You either change your life or you explode. And so being flexible, being able to accept when you're wrong is actually extremely good for you. And, and I would say it's a, a sign of a thriving mental health, a, a thriving state of mental health. Um, So when, when can opening the aperture of incoming ideas that will you allow to change become too much of a problem? Well, you, the, the thing is, is that you have to have some objective measurement. And the closer that your personal objective measurement is, is, up, is actually producing things which are objective, is going to produce less problems with you accepting, uh, you know, being too flexible and accepting untoward claims because the, the, the solution for that is a well-defined judge of what you define as true. And the, how you develop a well-defined judge of what you have to introspect. You have to know what you want. You have to know your limits. You have to know where you're willing to go and what you want to achieve and what you're what you know what things you're willing to do what you're willing to give up you have to know this in advance and you have to accept the consequences of making these limitations because there's always going to be a limitation That being said, I, like to, I, I would like to try to look at this from the other side of the perspective. How do we know when anyone is giving us truthful information? Because like I said, half of the calculus in all this is determining what, however you digest society and output the knowledge of what they believe and how you disseminate that into being a societal norm because this this can also it doesn't have to be a bad thing it just like um the the personal perspective part of it it has it's it can't be too one or the other um but people can live completely in the domain of believing that nothing is objective that they can personally experience and that everything that they base their decisions on 
um, is what is dictated by society. And uh, these people actually probably are more successful than the previous group who only believes in personal um, revelations because they're actually going to cohese more with what is the, the mean um, dictates of society. <coughs> and 95% uh, of the time, those things are the way they are for a reason. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but uh, you're giving up two things with that approach. First, you're giving up any flexibility you might have if the society is, isn't completely accurate. Um, and two, you're giving up any portion of individuality. Um, the more you adhere to that system, the more you have to accept what society has dictated. And uh, back to the master and the emissary example, I think that the former is the right hemisphere and the latter is more of the left hemisphere. And as McGillcrest points out, that we are becoming a continually more left hemisphere centric oriented world. And to this extent, it has caused us to the greater, for the most part, people, um, they don't want to, they want to discount personal experience. <coughs> they want to discount personal experience and they want to instantiate that the societal need is, is the overall. That any per because there's such a diffuse um, nature of expertise within our, within our society that you always have to assume that someone knows better than you do in any particular um, in any particular domain, because this, I mean, this can be very detrimental and very helpful to you, depending on how much you choose. And this is all a matter of judgment. And granted, all of our situations are going to be dictated by um, our environment and how, how we're, our intellectual lives are, are brought about. Because... Uh, and that's also where the paradox of complexity comes in, is our inability to, to know all the intricate things that may lead up to big decisions. Um, because all the big decisions are led by a convalescence of small decisions that reach a boiling point. Um, but what I wanted to go into, and I've already been over halfway to introduce it, um, is the idea of Freudian slips. Because I kind of, uh, I know Freud has this uh, misogynistic perception, uh, persona, um, and uh, I, I don't know. Oh, hold on. Yeah, sorry about that interruption. I'm going to go back to what I was talking about. Uh, talking about Freudian slips and how Freud has 
uh, become less uh, seen as less of a source of wisdom, so to speak, in the past few years, um, which it's hard for me to even say one way or the other. Um, from what I've seen, a lot of this stuff is pretty interesting. Uh, you don't have to take it for truth necessarily. Um, but the things that, that are the most important things that we've derived from Freud are things that are so integral to the way we think that we hardly even attribute him to them, you know, because they're so there. The idea of uh, an unconscious was his, his idea. Um, and now it's basically common knowledge about the unconscious mind. And uh, yeah, that doesn't happen by accident. That happens because it's a brilliant idea, a brilliant way to summarize something, a brilliant way to look at a concept and be able to say, oh, this is, you know, just like I was saying earlier, um, when, we, when we have something that changes our mind and it, it applies to all the tertiary connections that it makes, it's the same way when we build knowledge um, that the more universal we can apply the rule, the more we assume it's universal. Um, beside that, um, I haven't read much of Freud. Um, I know most of his stuff just by reading people who've referenced him, who talked about him. The one part that I have read, which is right at the beginning of an introduction to psychoanalysis, which ironic. Uh, is the idea of Freudian slips. And uh, for some reason, the story about the clown prince always cracks me up, and I never forget it. But the, th the thing that surprises me about the conception of Freudian slips is really how underplayed people assume it is. And uh, given the fact that this is a podcast, and this is referring to multiple other podcasts that I've listened to, and I am a consumer of podcasts, and I enjoy it thoroughly. Um, but one thing I know about being extemporaneous for an amount of time is there's a certain percentage that you're going to make slips up, and you're going to say, you know, something that wasn't intended to say. And, you know, there's various um, explanations for why this is. Um, what Freud talks about is kind of a... Um, conjoining of terms gets uh, commingled in your head in some way that is unintuitive and therefore it kind of comes as a surprise or um, to most people it sounds like it's a random other utterance. Although admittedly all Freudian slips um, they uh, have a structure in common in that they are a, a transformation of the word that we were trying to say. Um, although this isn't necessarily so, and I think this is an important point because what I, you know, given the fact that I believe in a deterministic system, I do not think a Freudian slip is, uh, an error, a mere, you know, blip. I think it comes from somewhere. It comes from varying levels of mental mechanism that, uh, you can attribute in different ways. And the problem with attributing mechanisms to the slip is that 
you can't be sure of which one or which other it has uh, been applied to. Um, there are various ways you might get hints at this, but necessarily it will always be an inference. And it's, you know, as with any reading of someone um, based on, uh, you know, unconscious things, um, you're, you're fraught with the, the problem of perceiving it um, because oftentimes the root of the unconscious motive is disconnected from what it's trying to achieve because that, that's how the, the disconnect happens is that one part of the mental relationship gets um, overly prioritized for some other reason. Now, I don't have a whole lot of like Freudian slip examples to offer. Um, the one I had thought of me using is um, with Donald Trump, the current president, he has this problem of constantly, instead of saying countries, saying companies, which it doesn't take a, you know, a leap of faith here to figure out why that might be. And, uh, you know, this is a, a lower level transformation, which uh, I think is less indicative of the fact that it's a, I think the, the more the transformation happens, which is, you know, if it goes from countries to companies, that kind of makes sense. It both starts with CEO, they have similar, you know, structure. Um, but if it went to like countries to, you know, barbiturates, then, then that, that is indicative of a higher level abstraction within the subconscious, um, an odder um, connection. And it also is indicative of the fact that those things in the mind at some point are strongly connected as opposed to weakly connected. I think in the case of Donald Trump, mis mistaking countries for companies, um, this is a weaker one because it's more within his conscious domain already. I mean, he's thinking of GDP as being, a, you know, the same as a company's productivity. And we all seen those, the lists that say, oh, this is the, t the top countries as, as their economies with, you know, interspersed with different levels of, you know, oh, this single person or this country or this this uh particular company or this particular state has you know which is always funny to see like oh it's the vatican and then right below it is you know pennsylvania it's like <laughs> <coughs> provides an ironic dissonance in any case uh but I think that the Freudian slip has to be indicative of an underlying assumption that connects the slip with the intention. Um, what, you know, to what purpose is this evolutionarily beneficial? Um, well, is there are things within the psyche that 
need to be unconsciously represented to the people around you while being consciously veiled. That would be my assumption. And uh, that's a tough one. <laughs> uh, you know, what might be implied by this line of thought? Well, that there are people within society whose best purposes are to be routinely manipulated and routinely um, positioned to be of best use to whomever has the greatest ego in the situation. Um, I think that this is why uh, things like schizophrenia and other mental disorders um, become possible um, as evolutionary uh, things to latch onto as opposed to being, um, you know, a pointless vestige that, sh that should be immediately bred out of, uh, of existence. But uh, it's not, because having people who are crazy is somehow beneficial. And it's kind of hard to wrap my head around that, because, you know, in some sense we want to view, you know, merit as being the driving force behind our deterministic uh, motive systems that, you know that the societal system that we live in can be straightforward and uh, seem, uh, you know, as it should be, because then we can strive for things, you know, the whole point of free will. Um, but the whole point of a system that puts forth the idea of free will is to put people in positions where... Uh, they're going to be manipulated and then think that they have a way out or that it's based on some internal measure that goes, you know, some internal merit that goes beyond the in interphysical merit. And uh, this goes back to what I was saying about the author stepping outside of, of the writing. Um, the, the same thing with the people who more manipulate societal forces is they have a greater ability to step outside of society and to look at forces that they can manipulate from without. Um, once again, in an extremely left-brain sort of impulse. And uh, this also goes with the fact that people who are more left-hemisphere-dominant also tend to be uh, those with mental disorders. Um, the people who, uh, schizophrenia is more at, in a left, left hemisphere people. It's more indicative of uh, the left hemisphere worldview, so to speak. Um, So I guess I had less on Freudian slips than I thought. <laughs> it's pretty uh, pretty much what I got. Um, it's just, I guess, 
it's surprising to me that it's it's still even by people who know better you know they say that it, oh yeah it's just you know like you know it's like the Freudian interpretation of dreams it's in the same ma- manner is that um, there's an assumption that we we uh, think about the dream and that that's what is the truth but that's really what the, the, the dream is trying to express to us Does that mean that precision in speech is, uh, or is, or is the fact that Freudian slips are more possible is more indicative of um, a left hemisphere dominant person, so who can be more easily to, uh, hooked into? Because God knows there's many people who are hardwired um, to be able to best manipulate certain vulnerable groups of people that exist and I don't think that's an accident I think that those impulses are not um, they're not just uh, memes that pop into the ether randomly and, and, and are embodied in a single person you know those are things that have evolved over time and become strong, you know. And that is the scariest thing about seeing people who have these insane mental dysphorias and this insane want um, and capacity to manipulate people. Um, Because, you know, A, they they never feel guilty. You know, they're just doing what, what they're dictates tell them and for you know depending on how deluded you think they are about their own intentions um it could go either way you know i I always think it's it's a diversion though it's a you know a freudian slip of the mind is that and maybe that's what a freudian slip is you know beyond the fact that it has some evolutionary benefit for other people to use you. But it's just a tag within the mental system reminding of prioritization. Um, that, you know, there's, if you talk about a string of things that are less interesting, you're going to in- interject uh, information that you think is relevant even though you're not able to. And uh, anyone who's had an argument with someone where you're using hypotheticals, this is not hard to imagine because you go down that road and it gets pretty ridiculous. Um, You know, the old, I'm going to talk about, oh, this is my friend, but really I'm talking about you or, you know, whomever. Uh, This happens so often that it's, you know, I'm surprised it's not more in fictional uh, accounts because that seems like it'd be a great, you know, I'm sure there are examples, but, uh, and there definitely are, (laughs) but that, that process is just kind of interesting. Um, it only ends two ways. Either the, the veil is lifted, 
um, or the the veil is more you know the smoke enters the room and everything is even more diffuse and diluted and and you know I guess that really points to your implicit intention um, you know it can go either way in in many options but why would that hypothetical situation need to happen in the first place um, you know, and that's and that's kind of the nature of the idea of Freudian slips is you're constantly dealing with people's unconscious biases, and if you didn't, then you were you'd be a horrible um, executor. <laughs> well, that's the wrong word. A horrible, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to work in society well. You wouldn't be able to understand people at all because you can't understand. Sometimes people don't mean what they say. Sometimes people are Im implicit in something else and uh you know it becomes this game of and you know we've all seen that in social situations where it's the sliding scale of uh of abstract iterability um But yeah, I think it's the the left hemisphere gets focused on a, a line of reasoning, and uh, in the background, it's humming away, trying to uh, relativize constantly, and that's what crosses Freudian slips is when the the conscious stream of uh, verbal data gets interrupted by the attempt to interject meaning of the right hemisphere. And I guess I'm going to fall, end up with uh, this thought I've been having about the relationship between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere because I think that it's dynamic and it actually explains a lot of the mental processes that we didn't previously have anything to attribute to or that we were wondering what the heck you know but uh, obviously you, you got to be careful when you're thinking in terms of this because it could be other dualisms within the mind not necessarily a left-right split there's also frontal back there's also unconscious conscious um, Although it's been clear that the left hemisphere is very much um, is very much more uh, of a conscious sort of entity, whereas the right is seen as more dominant for the unconscious processes. One of the things that the left hemisphere um, does which um, cannot, you, you can't go fully into left hemisphere because it dehistorizes and you know as Nietzsche said it mummifies ideas when we pull certain things out of context and put them in a, uh, a focusing light I think of it a lot like how our eyes work in that we have a tiny tiny aperture the fovea of our vision um, is small, and it's the focus of all of the cones in our eyes, which are the most um, 
or it's the focus of the rods in our eyes, which are are the most complex in our eye. Uh, on the out, outside is our periphery, um, which is most of our field of vision at any given time, um, which is uh, our cones, um, which are less, uh, you know, which this is all in an effort to make uh, sight as efficient at, in, in, t in terms of brain space as possible. Um, and uh, it's the same way with our conscious and unconscious minds and the left and right hemisphere is uh, we have an aperture that's only as big as it needs to be for efficiency's sake. Um, and this goes right into uh, one of the, the comparisons I have with the left-right hemisphere model um, in Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Because um, we're thinking in terms of System 1 and System 2. And System 1 is reflexive thought. that It's part of our mind that deals with things that don't require a lot of energy. And that's, that's what our, our minds default onto. Uh, and system two is what is required of, for complex thought and interjection. Um, well, not interjection, but just complex thought. Uh, and system two is, is that way because um, to be as efficient as possible. What we can relegate to system one, we, don't, we, can rel we relegate to system one. And what we, can, what we don't, we have to use system two, but it's actually a less efficient process. Um, in this sense, the right hemisphere is system one, and the, the left hemisphere is system two. And the relationship that I gave, um, as McGillchrist says throughout the book, the, the mind, when it goes through the, the, a thought process, it, it transfers from the right to the left, and then from the left back to the right. And the reason I think this is super important, and, and you know, I think that the transfer is actually more implicit to the, the different attributions of the hemispheres than the hemispheres themselves. Um, in fact, it, you know, McGillcrest starts the book explaining how the, you know, most of the functions of either is, trans, is, is similar, and that there's only the, the, the differences that we see. Um, and I think this is totally correct. I think most of the differences we see is from the, the transfer of information from the right to the left and back to the right. Um, how that affects our nervous systems um, and how our corpus callosum then distributes and uh, dampens certain parts of that information. Um, because that, that is the important part. Because from the right part to the left part, uh, your corpus callosum is, is choosing what, to get, what information that you need, what information you don't need. Um, and this first transformation is, is, based, is the, is the um, it's the uh, a posteriori, um, conception of thinking that comes before experience. This is where the right hemisphere unconscious 
interjects the information that it needs back onto the left hemisphere and to the conscious mind and the conscious stream of thought. And so when it comes into our field of, of consciousness, it has already been transformed. Um, you know, the, the right hemisphere has given a impression of the sense data that has been uh, transformed by the corpus callosum to be rec received by the consciousness in whatever light it deems is the best. Um, then the left hemisphere, the thought goes back into the right, once again going through the corpus callosum. Once again, the, uh, the things from the left hemisphere are, are distributed in a way that the right hemisphere can turn it into an actionable process. The right hemisphere also transforms it into, um, into considering what the left hemisphere has done and into changing the, the future uh, initial transformation to be more conducive to the outgoing. So there also is another transformation that happens after thought that comes to um, nudge our internal systems one way or the other based on our conscious information. Then this is re retorted back to our body, which then um, acts. Um, I think this is what the System 1 and System 2 is. The, f the, the most, System 1 is, is in the right-handed brain, and the, the things where the corpus callosum um, can um, basically block everything that goes into the left hemisphere because it's unnecessary. We, we, you know, this is how animals dictate their actions, is they... There is no conscious consideration necessarily. Um, there is a sense response and a physiological reaction that causes. Um, it's, it still goes through a left, right, left, right transformation. It's just there's not the conscious content is a lot less involved, um, and the transformation from left to right is a lot less involved in that sense. But that that's where the strong impressions. From the first are are then transferred straight to the right with certain transformations um, and uh, so without that then there, there's no it, it it's trying to save as much energy by not engaging the consciousness as much as possible because what the consciousness then does is it re, it takes the sense data and inputs it into the mental apparatus um, this is what I said in the first, or episode zero, is that, our conscious mind takes a hold of the information. Damn, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> it's more, okay, let's go back. There's more efficient, um, to take to remove as much as possible of the left hemisphere and that problem. But the, the fact of us being human allows us to have more capacity to engage the left hemisphere. Um, and the reason why the consciousness is necessary in that sense is that uh, it's an, something that allows us to nudge us out of particular social interactions.
Um, and so therefore my mind consciousness is related mostly to social creatures. Um, and we can say that because A, we're the primate, we're both the apex of intelligence and social um, ability in the animal world. And there seems to be a, an incline along those same lines throughout. Um, obviously there's, in, there's complex social interactions that can happen without a high degree of intellect, um, such as ants. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's the one counterexample, but I, I think that they, they, uh, have such a complex society because they're, they're so small and their powers and their in, in, infinite replicability based on the, the, the amount of resources they need to create a, a new individual. <coughs> Crap. I thought I was saying something good. I hate when that happens. Well, I'm, I was going back to the system one, system two, why it's more efficient. But I do think those are are correlated. Um, and uh, our societies are built so that we can use as little of the left hemisphere as humanly possible. And we can, um, but the problem with that is the aperture for those who don't have to use, you know, the minimal amount of less hemisphere processing as possible. Um, uh, the problem is, is that we've been evolved to use it regardless. Um, this is what causes um, NUI <laughs> or anxious boredom. Uh, another symptom of a schizophrenic left hemisphere position and why the world is continually more left hemisphere is because that was our societal way out. Um, and as that became the greater percentage of people, um, the more inequality there is, the more left hemisphere dominant uh, populations you're going to get because the more diffusion of evolutionary um, motive has to happen. Uh, no longer can you just remove the impulse of the left hemisphere completely as much as possible. Um, that's why, as I said in the in episode zero, that philosophy is um, an outcropping of rationality and rationality itself is a divergent evolutionary strategy um, that happens to be able to use objective data to affect real world problems and uh, that goes full circle to where we started this conversation how do we determine what is objective well that is the question that is the lever about which human society is, is crafted. And, you know, if we had an answer for that, then we would have a perfect system. And we don't. And I don't think we ever will. I don't think there is a perfect answer. Um, I think that's inherent in a world of becoming 
that it changes constantly. You can't ever have a stultified, you know, system that just works one way and it's perfect because there would be no change. There would be no um, time would cease to exist. Um, and maybe we're coming to a world where that's what they want. Maybe the left hemisphere has overtaken everything and we have fantasies of where we can kill time finally and for all that all of our problems are solved, you know? What more is the idea of this AI revolution and the idea of living in a simulation? What more is that than the deluded fantasy of the left hemisphere at its finest? Oh, that's basically it. But to that extent, it, it, we can't lose sight of the left hemisphere. In fact, I, I am one of its main proponents. Um, but we have to know the balance here. Well, that was uh, an interesting attempt. Um, I hope I made some sense and maybe told you something you never heard before. Um, that's kind of my intention. Um, you know, I really think this, the idea of the, the transfer of ideas and thoughts uh, through our mind in that fashion um, that seems to make sense. Uh, you know, um, I think that a function of the fact that we're more left here, hemisphere dominant nowadays is um, basically what Jordan Peterson wrote in Maps of Meaning. Um, it starts from the premise and ends with the premise, I suppose, that our lives are lived in narrative form. And uh, that's true because um, that's how we can create that artificial simulation of the left hemisphere. That's how, you know, how we can allow the author to put us on a, a ride of complete irreality uh, because they can step outside of time and change all the aspects to fit our expectations. And, uh, and we could pretend like that's how it's supposed to be. Anyway, this was Quintessence and Dust, episode one, Freudian Slips. Um, yeah. Take care of yourself. <laughs>